So we we went out last night for dinner, and we were sitting next to a couple who was on their like first date, and we were we were watching the Bucks game, and the guy was trying to explain basketball to the woman who definitely knew it better than he did. Oh no. there. Welcome to Hot Takedown, a sports podcast from 538. This is a show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. If you were a listener of the previous iteration of Hot Takedown, welcome back. And if you're new, we hope you like what you hear. Today is May 7th, 2019, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the assistant sports editor here at 538. I'm joined in the studio by one of my co-hosts, senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. Hey, Sarah. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm well. Awesome. And on the line from Los Angeles is 538 Sports Editor Jeff Foster. Hey, Jeff. How's it going, Sarah? How are you? Not bad. So uh, the Kentucky Derby, I'm guessing you did not have the winning horse. I did not. That is correct. As covered last week, I never have the winning horse. So that that trend held true. Um, I did say, for the record, that if it was raining... Maximum security, who likes to go to the front and stay in the front, um, would do well um, because that, in the Florida Derby, maximum security was, you know, was similar conditions, incredibly muddy. And the horses that like to go to the front in and, and don't come from behind aren't getting mud kicked in their face. So it's an advantage. So if I had seen the weather, I might have bet on mac- maximum security. But guess what? I still would have lost. And I probably would have been really angry. As I know many were. I would imagine there were quite a few. There were quite a few derby gamblers who were pretty angry. Yeah, what was the number? Not, uh, uh, some some astronomical amount of money um, was thought to be won and then turned out to be lost yeah. based on the overturning of the uh, result, which is crazy. But doesn't that, Jeff, isn't it true that that type of thing does happen with some frequency in like, you know, lesser uh, races that people don't pay as much attention to? It's not that abnormal, I guess, to have something overturned like that, right? Well, it's fairly abnormal. I, I will say that a steward's inquiry is really standard. If you go to the track, which I've done a lot, because I think we've all well established that I'm a complete degenerate <laughs> at this point, um, you'll see it, you know, maybe there's nine races in a day. You'll you'll see it probably a couple of times. It is kind of rare. I, I can only think of a handful of times it was overturned. I think to the layperson seeing the steward's inquiry, everyone was like, oh, you know, like the challenge flag has been thrown. Um, which it had, but generally they look at it really quickly and make a decision. And I, I think we were talking on Slack that, you know, I was like, oh, they won't overturn it. But then when the time, you know, when time started to pass and it was taking a long time, I was like, okay, they're looking at this for a long time and there's a lot of eyeballs on this. And I think they're going to have to overturn it. And ironically, I think they could have just quickly looked at it and been like, it's fine, nothing to see here. And we'd have a, you know, a strong favorite winning the Kentucky Derby of a chance of another triple crown. Everyone's happy. Instead, a sport that was not doing well to begin with just had probably its low moment, I think, in the last, uh, well, probably since like Barbaro or something terrible else happened in that sport. I love it when when a sport comes on that people don't really know very well and then something controversial happens and then there are a million experts all over who are like so many takes he clearly changed lanes well he didn't impede that horse like all of these takes that were like you knew nothing about this two minutes ago this it was amazing that's me with soccer every (laughs) world cup summer 
<laughs> There's two problems here. One, the, the horse that he did cut off wasn't the horse that went in, went on to come in second, so that made it difficult um, for the judges. You know, it would have been a real clear decision if he cut off and slowed down the horse that came in second. Instead, it's some random 67 to 1 horse that was basically not affected. So that's problematic. The second thing, and this is like long term, they have to change the size of that field. It is really strange if you don't watch much horse ra- racing to have 20, that many horses, especially in those conditions. It's dangerous. Honestly, worse things could have happened. You could have had, you know, a couple horses fall or a jockey get tossed, and then that's a total disaster. Um, and it's just not safe. And like, you know, it's already a weird situation for the horses with the crowds and all that you know, heightened atmosphere, which they say they react to. Um, so they need, they, first of all, they don't need 20 horses in that race. There's six horses right off the bat that have no chance. So just get rid of those horses um, and make it a tighter field of, of the actual contenders. Um, so we'll see if they do that going forward. I think every newly minted Kentucky Derby expert should come up with at least one suggestion for how to change it, and then the Derby can go from there. Right. So. They'll pick the best. Yeah, and yeah, then exactly. Make the change accordingly. <laughs> exactly. No jockeys. <laughs> On today's show, we'll check in with a baseball team whose cold start had fans worried. We'll take a look at the thrilling end to the English Premier League season with soccer writer Mike Goodman, and we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. But let's start off with baseball. We're just about six weeks into the MLB season, and we're starting to get a better sense of which teams to watch through the summer. Some teams that started hot, like the Seattle Mariners, have cooled off a bit, and other teams that looked dead in the water in mid-April, like the Boston Red Sox, are back in business. One way the Sox have turned it around is by dramatically outscoring their opponents. On April 17th, Boston sat at 6-13, and with 77 runs scored and 119 runs given up. Since then, they've gone 11-6 and six with 99 runs scored and only 60 runs given up. Here's David Sampson of CBS Sports on Boston's run differential. Turns out that with all the stats that we look at, the one stat that actually matters is at the end of the game, you have to have more runs than the other team. I know people don't talk about that a lot. They want XBH and they want OPGKYA, but the Red Sox, to me, are in a great position. Jeff, is run differential the best measure by which to judge a team? I mean, I think it's a better measure than wins and losses. I mean, we know that. I mean, if it was up to the quants in the sports world, we just would ignore wins and losses altogether. We would have no results. <laughs> um, I think, obviously, it's a it's a, a more predictive um, statistic than wins and losses where fluky things can happen. Um, that being said, there's a lot of things that factor into run differential. I mean, it really is, you know, like a composite of of many stats going on. I mean, what what are the stats that are making you score runs and prevent runs? So you can obviously drill down farther in that. But generally, you know, it, it correlates strong. I think there's like a couple notable examples in recent history. Um, in 2007, the Arizona Diamondbacks had a negative 20 run differential and still won the NL West, which is remarkable. Um, and then they were promptly swept in the division series. And then just a couple of years ago, the Texas Rangers were only a plus nine and they still won the AL West and they were swept in the division series. I'm not saying, you know, it's impossible to have a so-so run differential or to outperform your run differential and, and not make it to the world series or anything like that. But I think both those teams who were sort of 
freakish outliers didn't do well in the postseason. Um, but generally, yes, I mean, it, it is a better measure to look at if you, if you want to get a feel for how well your team is performing or how good their chances are this season. Neil, are there other stats that can be sort of first indicators that a tide may be shifting for a team? Yeah, for sure. Um, like Jeff mentioned, you can kind of drill down to how the runs are being produced. So, you know, there's like multiple levels of luck that a team can have. And one of the big ones that we like to look at is that differential between actual winning percentage and Pythagorean or, you know, run differential based winning percentage. And that generally comes from basically when you win, it's by, you know, small margins. And as we know, you know, a team's record in one run games can be very uh, fluky sometimes and, and, you know, more the product of luck than their actual talent. And then when you lose, it would be, you know, by a larger margin and that uh, could, could make your run differential look worse than your actual record. Sort of the best predictor of how well a team does is how it does in, in blowouts. Does it mm-hmm. almost like net blowouts? Do you blow out other teams more than you get blown out? And it doesn't even matter if you're blowing out bad teams because pretty much every team in uh, pro sports is at a certain level of threshold where it gives you information if you blow them out uh and and they found that record in close games is sort of you know not all that predictive so i think that's one of the reasons why run differential and point differential is is a better indicator but then you can be lucky in terms of how many runs you score and how many runs you allow i remember the st louis cardinals i think in like 2015 or 2016 they had this crazy differential between uh how many runs that the components of uh the the stats that they allowed as pitchers said that they should have allowed versus the number that they actually allowed and that comes from things like leaving a bunch of men on base basically doing better in these sort of high leverage uh base out situations in which runs could score but if you strand them then you'll uh look better in the pythagorean than uh the underlying metrics say that you should because you're giving up fewer runs than than you should uh and you can even look at things like, you know, how much of your success as a pitching staff is due to defense versus, you know, striking people out and having, uh, you know, not walking them and things like that because we've seen batting average on balls in play uh, be sort of a fluky indicator too. So you can kind of parse out how many runs a team should score and allow and try to strip away all the luck. Uh, and there have been attempts to do this. Baseball Prospectus has sort of this whole suite of statistics where they try to kind of figure out how many, they, I think, think they call it deserved runs uh, allowed and deserved runs uh, scored and things like that, uh, where they try to strip away all the luck and kind of hone in on uh, how much a team actually deserved to score and, and allow runs. And that's a better predictor even than uh, run differential going forward. Uh, but the thing with the Red Sox is that I don't think that any of those stats for their first uh, month or, you know, three weeks of play would have foreseen them having, you know, this dramatic turnaround. The only thing that would have foreseen that, and I think it's actually the most important thing of all early in a season, is that you look at who's on the team and the track record of the mm-hmm. of the team. This is a team that won 108 games last year uh, and deserved most of that in terms of their run differential. And you knew that Mookie Betts wasn't going to continue to have like a sub 700 OPS for the whole season. And you knew that a lot of these guys were going to turn around. And this just happens in baseball sometimes. You have a bunch of guys have cold streaks at the same time and it can really uh, wreck your season. Uh, and, and, 
it wasn't really a question of whether the Red Sox would start to turn things around, but really a question of how much damage they would do to their record before they right. finally started to turn it around. Right. It's not like their run differential was good at the beginning of the season. It was really bad. It was actually I mean, the was... worst in baseball <laughs> right. or tied with the Marlins, which right. anytime you're tied with the Marlins in it's anything, not... it's a bad sign. <laughs> right. What about championships? <laughs> well, yeah. If, mm. if you win a championship uh, and, and do a teardown every five years or whatever it is, then you know maybe you would be uh, that would be an enviable position. But that's the only way. <laughs> so the Red Sox had gotten, you know, almost 20 games, around 20 games into the season, not looking so hot. How far into the season, Neil, does it become too late to turn it around? Well, I think the Red Sox are kind of testing that in the sense that if you look at our projections uh, and we have these ratings that kind of track a team's talent and then we project the rest of the season according to that and then we track the probability of making the playoffs, winning the World Series, etc. Well, if you look at all the teams that are sort of around the Red Sox in that pecking order, you got the Dodgers with like an 89% chance to make the playoffs. The Indians and Rays, 70% to make the playoffs. Rays in the same division as the Red Sox, of course. Yankees in the same division, 80% to make the playoffs. Astros at 90 The Red Sox only have a 51% chance to make the playoffs, and I think that that really kind of illustrates that you know, we talk about the games in September uh, mattering more in the sense that they, they're when pennant races happen and when you sort of feel the pressure uh, of being in, in a race, you know, to try to make the playoffs and every game takes on this enhanced importance. And it's a little like the gambler's fallacy, which they always talk about, which is, you know, if you if you had a poor performance at the start of the season, you don't get to assume that you automatically play better in the rest of the season to sort of make up for uh, the the number that you sort of banked away. You play at the level that you're projected to for the most part over the rest of the season, but now you've put yourself in a position where you have to sort of either you play better to catch up or you leave yourself falling short. And so that's why, you know, in our projections, we have the Red Sox projected for 87 wins. And that's just right on the precipice of making that, you know, second wild card almost. They only have a 16% chance of winning the division. It's a tough division, we should say. But I think that really illustrates that, you know, if you play poorly enough at the start of the season, you really have put yourself in a bad position where you have to either play like that 108-win team. And if they do that, they'll be fine. But you can't uh, expect that going forward uh, as sort of a mean projection. I mean, there's definitely some problems here, uh, starting with the pitching. Um it's worrisome. I mean, I think, you know, you have David Price now on the injured list. That's a guy who I think a lot of, you know, Boston fans and a lot of baseball observers thought had turned the corner last year and had figured something out and, and gotten back to his old form and was going to be a huge piece of their rotation. You got Chris Sale, obviously looked better in his last start. Velocity was way down to start the year. Um, which was hugely troublesome. I think he's going to be fine. But here's the thing. Chris Seale's problem in his career traditionally has been how he does at the end of the year. I mean, his numbers for August and September and October are not good. That's generally when he's at his weakest. So you really need, when you're having good Chris Sale, you need him to really be strong. And traditionally, like May, June, July, this is when he's basically unhittable. So they need that version of that pitcher not only now but also at the end of the year too which you know hopefully there is an October for them Rick Porcello struggling obviously um looks really bad Eduardo Rodriguez also not looking great Ivaldi's hurt here's the other thing about the Red Sox though there was a great missed opportunity here I mean the Yankees have been playing with 
essentially like half their lineup being AAA replacement players. I mean, I, every time I watch a Yankees game, I, I don't know half the guys on the Yankees. I mean, that is not a good sign. I mean, they have so many injuries, um, you know, with Stanton out and Judge out and um, everyone who's injured for that. Severino, obviously, still up in the air what his status is. Um, those are their best players, and yet they're right there pretty much – in the stand, what are they separated? Just four games ahead of the Red Sox still with a plus 40 run differential. They're going to get a lot better when these guys start coming back from injuries. So I think this could have been an opportunity maybe to, to pull ahead of the Yankees. But I guess, Jeff, you could flip that around from the perspective of a team like the Yankees or the Rays and say, you know, we should be burying the Red Sox right now. And the fact that they're only six games off the lead uh, in the division, despite this horrible start is actually kind of encouraging for the Red Sox, because I think if the Yankees, like you mentioned, hadn't been as injured, they would have really had a chance to sort of pad a huge lead in the division. But because they happen to be off to, you know, sort of a not as good of a start as they would be capable of at full strength, they missed an opportunity, too, to just completely end the conversation of the Red Sox ever being able to kind of storm back. And now we're starting to see, like, hey, those odds are not as bad as they were by any means, uh, you know, a week ago, two weeks ago. Uh, and it wouldn't be shocking if the Red Sox did play their way back into it. Uh, and I think that wouldn't have been possible if, you know, the Yankees hadn't had as many injuries and sort of also gotten off to sort of n- not as bad of a start, but sort of a 500-ish start at the beginning and, and you know, sort of up and down. The Red Sox have actually had a really easy schedule so far. The Yankees and Rays have had pretty easy schedules, too. Boston's schedule has ranked 23rd, according to ESPN's Relative Power Index. So that's that's part of it, too. They had a chance to feast on some of these crappier teams and didn't, and didn't do so. Before we move on, let's get a word from this week's sponsor, 1-800-Flowers. This Mother's Day, don't settle for anything less than the biggest and brightest bouquets from 1-800-Flowers.com. 100 Flowers has amazing offers on beautiful Mother's Day bouquets and arrangements, starting at just $29.99. With a huge selection of sweets, treats, and bouquets, 1-800-Flowers has everything you need for Mother's Day. Arrangements start at $29.99, but you have to order today. Make sure you lock in this offer. It's only good while supplies last. After you've chosen your gorgeous bouquet or arrangement, simply pick your delivery date and let 1-800-Flowers handle the rest. To order beautiful and vibrant Mother's Day bouquets starting at $29.99, go to 1-800-Flowers.com, click the radio icon, and enter code TAKEDOWN. Order today and save at 1-800-Flowers.com, code TAKEDOWN. We are joined by 538 contributor Mike Goodman, managing editor of StatsBomb and co-host of the Double Pivot podcast. Hi, Mike. How are you? Great. It's good to be back. I missed you guys. <laughs> yeah, it's good to have you. So the English Premier League title race is down to the wire with the winner still undecided going into the last match of the season. Manchester City holds a one-point lead on Liverpool, but City's win on Monday over Leicester City means that all it needs is a win Sunday against Brighton to sew up the title. Here's Kelly Cates on BBC Radio 5 Live Sport on Man City's big win on Monday. That was the one. I just can't see Brighton getting anywhere near Man City, the most unforgiving title race ever. 
So, Mike, it's not totally impossible for Liverpool to rally for the title right now, right? But it seems pretty difficult. Can you lay out some of the scenarios that would have to happen in order for uh, them to either finish in uh, the opposite order that they are right now or even have the uh, amazing one-game playoff? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So, so let's let's work backwards, and we'll st- well let's start with the most likely scenario, which is that Manchester City beats um, uh, beats Brighton, and that's that's it. That's the the title is uh, theirs. It is by far. I think you guys have them at something close to eighty five percent that they win the title, and that's by far the the, the biggest chunk of that is this. Uh, Manchester City is a lot better than Brighton. Um, and if they win, it doesn't matter what Liverpool does. Now, the question is, is what happens if Manchester City doesn't win? If they draw and Liverpool wins, Liverpool wins the title. If Manchester City lose and uh, Liverpool draw, that puts them both on 95 points. And now the, the tie difference, the, the tiebreaker there is goal difference, which Manchester City is significantly ahead in. But... What could, in theory, happen is Manchester City lose for nothing. Liverpool, Seems likely. <laughs> Liverpool and Wolver- uh, Wolverhampton draw four four. Also seems likely. <laughs> and if that is the case, then City and Liverpool would both be tied on points, tied on goal difference, and tied on goals scored, which is the entirety of the tie-breaking mechanism. And at that point, there would be a one-game playoff on neutral territory. So if you are on Team Chaos, as uh, Paul Carr likes to say, um, then that's what you're rooting for. So Liverpool also has the added pressure of facing Barcelona in the second leg of the Champions League semifinal Man City, meanwhile, lost in the quarterfinals and hasn't had to play those extra matches the past two weeks. Is there a benefit there for Man City to actually having lost in the Champions League? Probably a little bit. It, you know, there's, there's, there have, it, it is hard often to tease out the exact sort of impact of, of the extra games that are being played. I think by the time you get to the end of the season, it's not necessarily the individual matches, but sort of the added wear and tear on your legs. And City's had a lot of that, right? They, they won... Uh, the League Cup, the first domestic cup in England. They are in the finals of the FA Cup, the second domestic cup in, in England. Uh, chronologically speaking, FA Cup is the first in everybody's hearts. Um, but, but, so, so they've ha- they have a ton of, of, of miles on their legs as well. So I, I'm not sure that it's, it's, necessarily simply that Manchester City have had two less games to play at this stretch of the season, which means they come out ahead now. But certainly Liverpool is juggling lineups in a way over the last three weeks. And now they've had some significant injuries um, with both Mo Salah and Roberto Firmino going down, which are like two thirds of their kind of irreplaceable front three uh, that, that, it's, it, it, it has an effect. Who has more of an effect, I think, is kind of an open question. Do, do teams sort of have to choose which competitions to care about more when they're happening simultaneously like this? Yes, often, although, again, that is the kind of circumstance that having a lot of resources can mitigate against. So if we look elsewhere in the Premier League, Tottenham, who have looked like they're going to finish fourth <laughs> um, and qualify for the Don't Champions say League, that. Are, are, <laughs> are also in the semifinals, right? They're also in the semifinals of the Champions League, and that has stretched their resources very, very thin. And they they really have had to sort of manage their lineup. When you're Manchester City and you have all the money in the world and you spend all the money in the world, part of what you're spending money on is depth so that you can rotate players and not see a drop in performance. Liverpool is a little bit more in the middle. Um, 
especially in attack, they have three such special attackers that have such chemistry in, in Sala, Firmino, and, and uh, Sadio Mane that it, it, it does seem to me that it takes a toll. And when they decide to rest those players is sort of indicative of where they are focusing and where they are not. Is that kind of unfair to teams that do really well in both competitions that they do have to kind of make those decisions? It sounds like it's almost uh, more unfair to teams that sort of have fewer resources and another way in which sort of the income inequality of European soccer sort of shows itself uh, when you have some teams have the depth to be able to juggle these things at the same time versus other teams that might not be as equipped to do it. I think that that's true, but the the flip side of that coin is that it is generally the teams with more resources that are going deep in many competitions at the same time, so it can act as kind of a check on them, right? So Chelsea, Tottenham, and Arsenal, three, four, five in the league, all have have had deep European runs, and and that has clearly affected their their play in in the Premier League. And you can imagine a world now it hasn't happened this year, but you can imagine a world in which that actually put them closer to teams with to, to Premier League teams with less resources behind them. Your Wolverhamptons, your Evertons, your Leicesters, who might have a chance to actually surpass them in the league because of this added burden that Europe places on these teams, which is not being placed on some of the more mid table sides. So one more question is, which would be more meaningful for a team like Liverpool to win? You know, they they haven't won the the EPL in a long time. Ever that, since uh, since it's become yeah. the, the Premier League. Yeah, is that is that sort of like obviously the one that they, that would be most meaningful? Uh, maybe it is just automatically they have a much more greater chance of winning the EPL as well. Yeah, I think that that's the case. I think. For a, for a club like Manchester City, you don't get to choose, right? You have so much, you have so many resources and, and your goal is to win everything. And, and when you set out at the beginning of the season, your goal is to win four, four trophies, basically. Every competition you can. It's trickier with, with something like Liverpool. And I, I mean, I think bottom line is whatever you can win, Champions League versus Premier League, that's super meaningful and it is fairly, Unlikely that you see a situation like this year where Liverpool are really in it for both, although unlikely to win either. Yeah, that's kind of depressing to come so close to both and probably, according to our model and the various ones out there, fall short of both. This Liverpool side is historically great. If Manchester City and Liverpool win win this weekend, which is, again, the most likely scenario, Liverpool will have accrued the third most points in Premier League history. The only two teams that will have ever scored more than the 97 points Liverpool would have are Manchester City this year and Manchester City last year. <laughs> and at some point, you, you you sort of shrug your shoulders and throw up your hands and like, what more can we do? Um, but that that is the state that Liverpool are in. Yeah, uh, Liverpool only lost one time in the EPL all season. Uh, and Man City actually has lost four times. Both teams are just sort of head and shoulders above above all of the rest in the table. Um, what do the stats say about those two teams? Is it sort of unfair? Also, speaking of unfair situations, that a team that only lost one time during the season would actually not win the championship because of the number of times that they uh, draw? I mean, I, I think that that is fair. I, I think, you know, winning winning is three points and drawing is one point, and the points are allocated that way for a reason. Uh, and I think it is a fair representation to say that Manchester City has been the better team this season. Not by a lot, but um, you know the, the underlying numbers, their expected goals numbers, show uh, that Manchester City's attack, which has scored 91 goals, is roughly in line with what expected goals 
suggests they should have scored. Whereas Liverpool, they've scored 87 goals, and like the the public facing expected goals numbers have them around 78, which is you know, I mean it's not a huge dislocation, but it's it it's pretty big. Uh, and then on the defensive side of the ball, you know, City have allowed 22 goals and expected goals says they quote unquote should have allowed 25, and Liverpool have also allowed 22, and they're at 28 expected goals allowed. So sort of on both sides of the ball, what you're seeing is Liverpool is performing somewhat better than their expected goals might predict, right? You might look at this as sort of like a a 90th percentile season for them, given how they've played. Whereas City are much closer to sort of being in line with with their underlying numbers. And you look at that and say, yeah, Manchester City probably are the better team, but Liverpool are, are unlucky in their way to be historically great but stuck in a season with City. <laughs> so the the other interesting thing about the Premier League, beyond the battle to win it, has been the battle to stay in the top four and qualify for Champions League next year. Down the stretch here, it has sort of seemed like no one has really wanted to finish third and fourth. Yeah, it's it's been really rough. So it's it's four teams. It's Chelsea, it's Spurs, it's Arsenal, and it's Manchester United. And all four of them have, uh, for various reasons, struggled mightily down the stretch. Uh, it looks going into the final day that barring something incredibly strange, it will be Chelsea in third and Tottenham in fourth. Arsenal could, in theory, make up the three-point gap and a very large um, goal difference gap to to both tie Tottenham with 70 points and then overcome, I think, what is an, uh, an eight-goal goal differential difference. Uh, it's not impossible, but it's pretty impossible. If there's any team that could fall, I, th- I think Tottenham is the team that could do it. So I'm uh, very excited to see how this weekend plays. What what is what is worth pointing out for Arsenal is that they could still win the Europa League, which would also qu- qualify them as a Champions League side. So that they could, in theory, be the fifth the fifth Premier League side to qualify for the competition. And they they have a better chance of that, obviously, of winning Europa League. Yes, clear. Oh, clear. We give them less than a one percent chance of of overtaking Tottenham in the table for Premier League. Yeah, eight goal differences don't generally get made up. The Premier League has kept us on the edge of our seats all year. It's only fitting that we wouldn't know the outcome until the final match of the season. Or perhaps second to final match. (laughs) Maybe, yeah. Thank you so much for joining us, Mike. All right, guys. I'll talk to you soon. Let's move on to our rabbit hole of the week. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, but some don't. We end each week's show with one of these descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. Let's start off with Jeff. So I wanted to look at one of the um, best parts of NHL hockey, which is um, absurd animal de facto non-official mascots. If you've been paying attention to the NHL this year, the Carolina Hurricanes are really the surprise team. And a lot of this is being attributed to Hamilton the Pig, (laughs) which is their celebrity mascot. It's a pig. Um, Celebrity. It's their their good luck charm. And I think most people are wisely crediting the pig as the reason uh, Carolina Hurricanes, a team that wasn't supposed to be in the playoffs, is now all of a sudden in the Eastern Conference Finals. Um, This is nothing new for hockey because hockey is deeply weird. (laughs) I've been saying that forever. Most hockey fans were like, oh, yeah, Hamilton the pig. That makes sense. That's why Carolina's in it. Um, So there's a lot of uh, history with both animal mascots. Usually they're um, dead animals that are thrown on the ice. So this is a little unusual to have a live one. The most recent memory would be uh, 
2017 Nashville Predators, the catfish became their mascot. They started, people started buying these huge catfish at fish stores and throwing them on the ice, um, which stems, of course, from the famous uh, Detroit Red Wings tradition, which dates back, you know, 50, 60 years of throwing octopuses on the ice. Uh, back in the day, it, when it started, I think you needed eight wins to win the Stanley Cup, and that's, is that the origin story? Something like that. Anyway, dead octopuses on the ice is a, is a common occurrence. And then, of course, how can I forget the rats, the rubber rats of the Florida, uh, Florida Panthers in 1996. Scott Mellenby, who was one of the players on that Panther team, had killed a rat with a stick in the locker room. It became sort of the mascot, and Every time they won or every time they scored, they would throw rubber rats on the ice. They went all the way to the Stanley Cup Finals. They eventually lost the avalanche, but obviously the rat was a big part of that. So I asked my friend Neil here to see which one of these good luck animals. And I we opened it up to other sports because baseball does this too, and there's been some other ones. So I'll let Neil take it away to see which one was the most effective good luck totem. Yeah, it was a little hard to find uh, like a comprehensive list. Like Jeff, you sent me a list of all the crazy things hockey fans threw on the ice, which made up a large portion of the weird unofficial mascot canon that I was able to form. <laughs> uh, because, like you said, hockey is just weird. I think it's more inclined to have some of these bizarre, uh, you know, totems than other sports. But basically, I was looking. I put together a list that included in from hockey, Hamilton the pig, the rat trick, like you mentioned. Um, the catfish from Nashville, uh, the Detroit octopus. I signed them the 1995 Red Wings. That was sort of the first season um, that they talked about it picking up steam again after the the Red Wings had been bad for a while. Um, uh, I, and by they, I mean Wikipedia. Obviously, this is <laughs> going to be a primary source for this uh, for this exercise in baseball. You got the rally monkey. I think that's um, sort of the the most well known one. Uh, the Anaheim Angels uh, in 2002 sort of rode that to the the World Series. You had the, the many variations of rally animal in baseball. Rally squirrel that the Cardinals had in 2011. A squirrel ran onto the field and became uh, their sort of unofficial mascot. Uh, the rally parakeet, which some people forget in uh, 2015 with the Mets, the uh, parakeet uh, showed up at City Field and uh, Johannes Cespedes hit a home run. And that sort of worked into the uh, the, the mystique of, of that team's run to the World Series. Wait, really? I don't. The rally parakeet. I have. You're going to have to look it up, I Sarah. feel like you're making that Gotta up. Got to look up the rally parakeet. Um, uh, and, and so. I wanted to note a couple ones. So the one that was least likely in terms of pre-playoff uh, odds of making the championship, and not all these teams won. In fact, few of them actually did win the championship, but they all made sort of significant playoff runs, except one, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, but I think if we allow, if we open it up to include humans in the um, in in the mascot uh, ranks, I think Sister Jean, the nun that became sort of the the uh, mascot unofficially for the Loyola of Chicago men's basketball team in 2018 that went to the final four lost of course to jeff's michigan wolverines uh (laughs) once they got there but that team only had a 0.2 percent chance of winning the ncaa championship and ranked only 41st uh in ken pomeroy's uh ratings going into the tournament that's the least likely that i was able to find in, in in all the ones that i rattled off uh the second least likely was the rally parakeet the mets uh based on their simple rating system at sports reference only had a 0.9 percent chance of winning the world series going into the playoffs uh and then you move on to um 
the Rally Squirrel, the St. Louis Cardinals in 2011, only a 1.5% chance. The Rat for the Florida Panthers in 96, 2% chance, and so forth. Uh, Hamilton the Pig, uh, even though Carolina was only the 13th best team, according to SRS, during the regular season, they had a 2.9% chance of winning the Stanley Cup because hockey is also, in addition to having exceedingly weird unofficial mascots, it's also the most random of these sports that we're looking at. So even 13th-ranked teams have you know a decent probability. But I wanted to talk about an unofficial or kind of quasi-official mascot for a team that didn't make the playoffs because I think this is great uh, just in terms of people knowing about it because it's so ridiculous. It was for the 1984 San Francisco Giants. They're a very bad team, uh, and they decided to sort of lean into that, and they created an anti-mascot, and they, they had what was called the Crazy Crab, he was played by an actor named Wayne, Wayne Doba, uh, and it was sort of meant to satirize the mascot craze. So fans were encouraged to boo the mascot uh, and, and and sort of hate on the mascot. In fact, Frank Robinson appeared in a commercial in which he had to be restrained from attacking the mascot. Uh, and it sort of worked too well because the 1984 Giants were terrible. They won only 66 games. Fans didn't really come out, but those who did show up would throw things at the crazy crab, including beer bottles and batteries. Uh, and they modified his suit and put in a fiberglass shell for extra protection uh, for the actor. Oh, my God. Um, and so eventually, uh, two players on the San Diego Padres actually attacked uh, the the crazy crab, and Doba injured himself and had to sue the Padres for it. One of those uh, players that attacked the crazy crab, ironically, would be future Giants manager Bruce Bochy. And- I don't understand. And they retired the crazy crab at the end of the season after they did not make the playoffs. So that is the sort of the most ineffective uh, uh, mascot totem. Uh, And if you look up a picture of the crazy crab, I think it's fair that even though the team sort of uh, condoned this uh, to include it among unofficial mascots, because it looks like absolutely no effort was put into designing (laughs) and making this this costume for this uh, mascot. So the crazy crab least effective animal totem Sister Jean among the human division, most effective. And if we go among the animal division, it would be the rally parakeet uh, or the rally squirrel or the rat. Okay. I have a couple comments. There was a lot to unpack there. First of all, the human division, Sister Jean is the only person or only thing Correct. in the human division. Yeah. So. That I was able to find. But the, the move, if you're the Padres, is to embrace the crab. You know, the, Why are you getting in on the anti-crab fun? I mean, you're supposed to be the opposite. You're the, you're the opponent. You're aligned with the crab. It doesn't make sense. Is it possible that the crazy crab situation was not super well thought out? I don't know. Just spitballing I here. can't imagine. <laughs> I feel like they gamed this out. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. I, well, I think we've all learned a lot today. That will do it for this week's show. Thanks so much for joining us. Listeners, we'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. This is still a new podcast, so if you like what you heard, please subscribe. Be sure to review and rate the show. Also, it really does help others discover us. You can also email us at podcast.538.com to let us know what you think of the program. Our podcast producer is Grace Lynch. Tony Chow is in the control room. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. Thanks again to Mike Goodman for joining us this week. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening and talk to you next time.